Hello and welcome back to Rise Podcast, Life Stories of Accomplished Individuals. Thank you for joining me again. You know, as always, I really appreciate it. You know, this has really been evolving into something special and the format has evolved where we we dive in not only to the to the stories of of my guests but we really dive into their expertise and we learn far more than i thought we'd be learning today we've got jason walk walk up with us jason walk from uh, mind body green jason thank you for thank you for being here i really appreciate it well thanks so much for having me gary it's a pleasure you know it was you and i have met this is the third time we're actually meeting the first time we met on a Zoom call, yes, yeah, would we had reviewed some business stuff. We were actually introduced by I think Valeria had met Colleen, yes, your wife, and we had we had a chat, and then we met at the Fiana event, yes, Fiana Rose. So Fiana Rose, for some context for people, Fiana is the beach club that we you belong to as well, mm-hmm. and and so do we, and they have a ton of different programming and events and a lot of cultural events, and you had just published or just or you not just published the book you published the book I think some time ago and and so you were you were going over your book and we were talking about you know you were you were kind of digging deep into your expertise which I hope we can do again today and then today's the third time so so thanks and you know you were great to to you know to accept this right away you were you were really responsive so thank you I appreciate it well of course it's great to be here I'm going to dive in and as always I'm going to read the kind of the tale of the tape the accolades that I prepared for you so if everybody will just bear with me and I'll, and I'll jump into it and then you'll tell me afterwards how I did. So Jason Wacob, a graduate of the prestigious Columbia University where he played varsity basketball for four years, is co-founder and co-CEO of one of the top wellness websites in the world, Mind Body Green, which boasts a staggering 15 million monthly unique visitors. After basketball and before Mind Body Green, Jason was making hundreds of thousands of dollars on Wall Street, yet feeling unfulfilled, disconnected, and extremely unhealthy. As the host of the popular Mind Body Green podcast and the author of the best-selling book, Wealth, How I Learned to Build a Life, Not a Resume, Wealth, by the way, is spelled W-E-L-L-T-H. Jason in, Jason's influence extends across various platforms. In addition to his personal Instagram accounts, 25,000 followers, the Mind Body Green Instagram account is followed by over 1.3 million people. His authority in the wellness space has earned him recognition in esteemed publications such as the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Forbes, Fast Company, Business Insider, Business of Fashion, and Vogue. Balancing his professional accomplishments, he finds solace in his family life, residing in Miami with his wife and co-founder, Colleen, along with their daughters, uh, Ellie and Grace. Did I get that right, Ellie and yeah, Grace? Yeah, you got it. His downtime indulgence includes this, uh, the simple joy of strolling to savor a cup of hot black coffee. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> you know, that's awesome. It sounds like, it, you know, you've really found that like, you had this real transition in your life. Mm-hmm. Um and you know myself being from canada i feel like we as canadians are not exposed to i guess the stress that one would experience being on wall street and and you know and just in general like the united states as a country is just 10 times that of canada and i it's like a reoccurring thing that people in this country get so stressed out in their 20s and 30s trying to just work around the clock you know putting in that consistent effort and then a lot of them get burnt out and a lot of them have just unfortunately terrible, you know, kind of things happen to their health. 
but you you noticed it in time and i guess and you you really turned things around before we get into your story which sure. is kind of the format i like to stick to i i just i want to understand like how do you identify at the time like how did you identify that this was such a problem and this was in your 20s i assume right yes and how did you make that but, transition so i actually wasn't stressed okay i really liked being an equities trader okay it was a great transition from being a collegiate athlete mm -hmm. every day you came in and there was a PL with everyone's name on it there was a leaderboard yeah, i like yeah. the competitiveness of it yeah i love sitting next to you know someone to my left someone to my right i love the collaboration i love sharing ideas i love the intensity however you know i didn't grow up with money and mm -hmm. I, I saw, you know, let's rewind. This is, I graduated from Columbia in 98. If you didn't have money and money was something you sought, you know, for me it was money meant freedom, money meant paying off my, my school debt. Columbia mm -hmm. had no athletic scholarships, although if you were an athlete, they made sure you got what you needed, but you still were taking on debt. And once I had achieved, you know, my, my first year, I think I made $70,000 my second year, I made 800. Sorry, whoa, 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 hold on a sec. How old were you? I was 25. So at 25, you make $70,000 and then- No, no, 20... so I was 24. I started, I, I started in January of 99. I graduated in 88. So I had just turned, I think I was 25. Okay. Do my math, I'm November 74. Uh, so in year two, yeah. I made $800,000 and I was able to pay off my college debt. I was able to pay off my mother's car loan. I was able to donate back to the basketball program. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do a lot of things and that felt good. What did you, what did you study in, in college in, in Columbia? I mean, I know, I know about the basketball. Sure. But what, what else besides playing varsity basketball, what did you study? Oh no, I think I know what you studied history. I, I did. Okay, However, so I was not the most academic Okay, so now I need that. Sorry, I, I apologize. There's a lot for, to unpack. There. Okay, so now I need to understand because again, the people listening, we have a lot of young people listening. Sure. And the, the you know the thing is for them is they want to understand like how do I go down this path and how do I get this kind of success? I mean that I didn't read about you that you were making eight hundred thousand in your mid mid twenties. Like you know that's massive. But, yes, but also so it was a couple of things. One. It, it, the macro environment is something you can never control. And I walked into an unbelievable macro environment where the NASDAQ went from 1300 to 5,000 and then went all the way back down. So within right. that volatility, there was a lot of money to be made and also lost. Mm -hmm. And so that felt the, the 800 felt good at the time. I was also in a relationship, which was a terrible relationship, but it was a long relationship and it was falling apart. So mm -hmm. I fe also felt very empty. I remember getting the first big paycheck, but also being like kind of miserable because this relationship was falling apart, but it also felt good with the, the freedom and all of a sudden and, <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff. But for me, it wasn't necessarily the stress because I actually think I'm more stressed running a business and being an entrepreneur. I think wa wall street and trading was easy. So Wall Street and trading was easier than being an entrepreneur? Yes. That makes sense. However, I think what really changed me was 9-11. Okay. You know, I was in New York at the time. I'll never forget. Uh, I was sitting at my desk. I was getting ready to trade. And all of a sudden, the S&P futures took a dive. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Because usually there's, there was a news. This, there had to be a news event for the S&P to st start trading down like it was. Yeah. Watch the NBC. Oh, there's an explosion in one of the towers. Okay, what's going on? 
how far away were you from the top? Uh, we were on Broad Street, so probably a quarter of a mile. I could see debris from the window. Wow. And then after the second tower hit, it was still unclear. Were they planes? Was it a fire? The second mm -hmm. tower hit. The phone started to jam. I, I, got a, I got a hold of my mother. And I said, I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. Okay. And I just took 15 flights of stairs down. Yeah. My, my instinct kicked in like, I need to get out of here. Right. And then just kind of ran and walked all the way through like the Lower East Side. But you didn't know at that point that I didn't it was know. an attack. I knew something was very wrong. But you didn't know that it was a terrorist I attack. I did not. But but the alarms, that, that instinct came in where I said, I need to get the hell out of Dodge. Okay. And I was like, I'm getting out of here. And then I remember went to an ATM, took out as much money as possible. Oh, I wow. got quarters. I would periodically call my mother from a payphone to say I'm like getting out of here. Right. Got into a yellow cab. I ran across the Williamsburg Bridge. I cut that way through Manhattan because said that this area is terrible. No one's, if something's happening, no one's touching the Lower East Side and the <laughs> Williamsburg Bridge. We're, we're good. <laughs> okay. Got across the bridge, got into a cab, went home. I was listening to it on the radio in the cab. Then hearing the tower and the plane, hearing this. I remember just coming home, just like out, outpouring of emotion. But by then it was clear what was happening and I was already long gone. Um, so like many New Yorkers, yes, there was the trauma of it and everything that went with it. But I started to really question, you know, what am I really doing? Is, is this bringing me, is this job bringing me purpose and fulfillment? I started to check out a little bit early, started summers, you know, it would be a summer Friday, then it would be a little bit more. Do you think that was the result of having a fairly large sum of money uh, being you know, it, so young? So you, were, I, th you were, I think that was I think that was part of it. I think what contributed was one having you know being able at that age that that's all that's a lot of money, right. regardless of life stage. I didn't want anything. Uh, I had resources to go out and and go drink and go to bars and buy my friends dinner, and that's all that really mattered. Sure, uh, but I, I was feeling empty. Uh, I remember. Um, just started to look around like what, what am i what am i doing i'm just not finding joy and then when i i moved a, a couple friends who i traded with were getting involved in investing and they founded a healthcare company and i invested in that and i was like you know what maybe this is my ticket out to try something so i ended mm -hmm. up leaving new york and moving to washington dc with them where i started trading by myself like in a solitary environment okay and then quickly i was just like you were trading your, your own money now yes okay so the firm i had worked with their <laughs> their philosophy was we're going to recruit all Ivy League athletes, and our pitch to them is really yes. Wow. Okay. You don't if you you can go work at Goldman or Morgan or wherever, but you're you're not going to be a coffee boy for two years. We're going to train you how to trade, and after three months, you're on your own. And okay. that was the pitch. Okay. And it was very attractive, and you don't have to wear a suit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay. And so after I did that, yeah. they had uh, what many people did is you could, rather than giving the firm 50% of your earnings, mm -hmm. which was still pretty good, they would loan you money at like 12% interest rate to then trade your own money. So it was like, this is fantastic. Sorry, but I'm a little unclear here. So the firm that you worked for, this was the, the second It was firm. a proprietary equity trading right, firm. Right, but this was after you had cashed out that you had that no, very- same firm. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, but it was after you had 
So uh, the, the eight the eight hundred yeah, that year was yeah. split between working for the firm and then I kept my seat, but then the relationship changed where I became a customer of the firm. Oh wow, okay. So simultaneously, so you were trading both other people's money, I guess. Yeah. During, I mean, and simultaneously going in on trades with your own capital. So in the beginning, it was I traded the firm's capital. Yeah. And then I made the decision to take a loan and then trade my own capital. So it was clear I went from firm's capital making fifty percent to I could earn probably up to ninety percent. Okay. My own capital. Wow. I wanna I wanna take a step back and I wanna kind of. You know, go back to kind of earlier on in your life because sure. you you had mentioned that you didn't come from money, sure. and so I'd like to understand you know the starting point and kind of what your circumstances were and kind of what was motivating you because it, it doesn't it it doesn't sound from what you've explained to me even from the brief interactions that you and I have had you're not motivated you don't seem to be motivated financially you're motivated sure. by what I perceived to be a higher purpose and that's to do with health and wellness and I definitely want to dive into that because that's a massive part of like success overall but but you know not being somebody who's necessarily motivated by by this kind of like you know by by large amounts of money you grew up I think you mentioned in Long Island right yes okay and so you were in I mean you're living kind of in the suburbs like did you have what, what did your parents do so my Parents were divorced by the age by age two, so basically my parents oh, were wow. split up. So I, I grew up raised by my mother and my grandmother. And were you? An, are you an only child? Yes. Well, as raised a result as an only of the child, divorce, yes. right? So, you know, and, and this was in the seventies, so that wasn't very common. I was born right. in seventy four. Grew up in a very nice, safe town called Manhasset, very homogenous. There's a famous book, The Tender Bar, a Pulitzer Prize winning book that J.R. Moringer wrote, who mm-hmm. also did the Prince Harry, ghost, ghost wrote Prince Harry and Andrew Agassi. And it's his life story of growing up in Manhasset. Wow. It's a very accurate picture of the town. Essentially, Manhasset is, as I mentioned, very homogenous, and it's about you know, lacrosse, alcohol, and the Catholic Church. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> and so, you know, I grew up there at a very, you know, supporting, loving mother and grandmother. But I think as I grew up, you know, was one of the few kids where parents were divorced, also live, and it's kind of a joke, I got perspective later in life, you know, we lived in the poor side of town. You know, we didn't have a big, Mm -hmm. big lot, the house Mm -hmm. wasn't so big. And so, you know, that probably played into my desire to, to make money. I would see my father, once a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was also in the same town? He was in Connecticut. How far away was that? Like an hour. Okay. An hour. But like we we weren't close. Our relationship largely, I think, revolved around basketball. He played basketball in college. I went on to play basketball. Basketball, I'd say, was probably, I'd say to summarize, I'm a big believer in sports. Yeah. And I think sports are some of the greatest teachers. Yeah. It's still a true meritocracy. One reason I like sports, but the, the life lessons I've had from playing basketball are far greater than anything I ever learned in college or so. Forth. Really? Yes. Really. You know, it's it's interesting because I I walk around with this kind of like constant guilt, and because I, as you know, I have three I have three boys, yes. and as a dad, like I want to be more consistent with their with their sports. And you know, you telling me this, it really, it 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 triggers something in me because I want to continue with you know doing sports with them, but I'm inconsistent. And the reason I'm inconsistent is because I grew up 
in a completely different set of circumstances in the sense that like nobody cared about sports where I grew up. Mm. So, you know, my, my father, my mom just completely like they're from a generation where they didn't even know that exercise was something that was beneficial. They sure. actually, my, my father actually argued that exercise was like the worst thing for your health that you can do because we're not designed to move around so much. He would have those debates. But my point is, is that because I was never raised with that and I never played sports, to me, it's a strain to get my kids to play sports, but I do anyways. I take them to tennis and sure. and soccer and, and whatnot. But it's interesting that you're saying like the the effect that it had on your life. So would you would you attribute a lot of your I guess work ethic and your resilience to to basketball? Yeah, the good and the bad and terrible experiences I had with basketball. Okay, all of it. But like. What were some of the ter- like what, what so, were some of the terrible experiences? So I think I'll sort of go chronologically with basketball. When I was in, I think ninth grade, I started traveling, mm-hmm. and I went to go play in Harlem at the Riverside Church, which yeah. is kind of a famous institution. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it was I was one of the only white kids. I quickly realized I lived in a bubble. You know why? for a variety of reasons. One, you know, where I grew up, it was one of the only kids who were parents were divorced. There I I met teammates who didn't know who their father was, who really were living in poverty, who really struggled with with safety. And it was an eye-opening experience. And how long were you playing there for? This was- So I would go on trips, AAU. AAU so like I remember being on a bus to Columbus Ohio for for a tournament where it's like an all night bus and I'm you know on a bus with like you know 20 20 black kids who were were just like you know I I have fond memories I I get like they would play 20 questions with me because they're like who's this white kid let's like (laughs) do you like Led Zeppelin (laughs) just just for context I mean for the people kind of listening and even for the people watching I don't think people know you're six foot seven yes so, like, the whole basketball thing makes a lot of sense at yes, that height. Yeah. Yes. So, I, you know, I, I learned a lot about, you know, I, I remember, you know, on another trip, we spent 10 days in Lubbock, Texas. Okay. Which, you know, exposed to racial profiling in a way that was really Sorry, disturbing. Ra- racial profiling. We went way. to a mall, and I'll never forget. Yeah. With, like, the whole team and, like, the amount of security that just followed us around. And what was interesting was a couple of my teammates were so pissed. They're like, I'm going to, I'm going to just take something just to, just, to, just yeah. to do it because this is what you're doing to me. So that was something I witnessed, you know? So it was, it was definitely an eye opening that that experience really exposed me to a whole nother group of people that living a sheltered existence, Long Island, it right. probably never would have been exposed to. Uh, I've had coaches who were my high school coach was mentally abusive. Really? Like, oh yeah. Uh, there was one summer I was trying to like put on muscle the summer between my, yeah. my freshman and sophomore year. And I like didn't know how to do it. Like okay. I did all the wrong things, like except okay. I was lifting, but I was also having like way too many carbs and proteins. So I probably added like 10, 10 pounds of muscle, which was a lot. Like I got bigger, yeah. but like 20 pounds of, of fat in all the wrong places. Okay. And he would just flat, like, make fun of, like, call me fat, like, to my face. Like, you're, all the fat jokes and everything, it was completely demoralizing, destroyed my confidence. That was brutal. Like, it took, and I was, like, 15, 16 years old. 
and playing so, on varsity, you know. And, and so, and do you feel like it kind of built up your resilience in terms of like in the business world? It, like, kind of fast forward to the business world now, sure. where I mean, you and I are both entrepreneurs, and like, I, I, I have an idea of what you deal with, and I'm sure as you do, vice versa, with me. Do you feel that type that type of resilience from your youth helps you in like the the type of negative things that you you experience? Does that help you today in kind of uh, of course all those roll off your, shape you? Yeah. Well, it, look, it was it was painful, it hurt, but it also you know with that coach also had a third degree ankle sprain, and I came. He encouraged me to come back from it too early, and was very <laughs> very in my face in front of saying, you know, essentially you're weak, you should be back in front of the whole team. And I ended up coming back early and I have like, I damaged my right ankle permanently. Right. And well, what were some of the positives though? I mean, you're talking about- Well, I learned, so in this process, I learned to stand up for myself. Yeah. Like I would okay. get back, you know, by the time of dealing, I'd say towards the end of my high school career, I would stand up to him. I go to his office one-on-one -on -one and just give it to him. Good. That I stood up for myself, you know, and I think I, I you know, I learned, I think that that's an important quality. I think some people when put in a corner, when you put some people, when they're put in a corner, just kind of crumble. If you put me in a corner, it's not, good for you. But, but I learned that through that experience. And I think that's really important, you know, and I think that a lot of people when they're, when they're dealing with abusive situations, and I think in today's society, you know, we, we talk about, uh, you know, we, we talk about all these negative things and, and emotional um, not emotional, but like mental health and stress, and especially with young people today. Sure. But I, I think that kind of this generation, and I, I don't want to get too controversial, but I feel like this generation doesn't even, they don't value, they're trying to stay away from any kind of stress. So like society at large wants to make sure that, oh, nobody is mistreated and nobody, and I'm not saying we should mistreat people, but but that experience that you had where this coach was abusing you, that created in you a, you know, a, a, a a resilience and a response mechanism that gets you through, you know, that gets you, that that to this day, I'm sure that you benefit from. Of you course, know, I'll tell you yeah. a quick, I'll tell you a quick story because I don't want to veer off topic too much. And this is to do with like, you know, stressful situations and how they contribute or how they how they change. In this case, not people, but dogs. And I'm not comparing you to a dog, but it's it's an interesting I story. Dogs. I love dogs too. I had when I was about 19, we got a, a chow chow. So I don't know if you're familiar with these dogs, but they're these, yeah. no, no, they're, that's a chihuahua. Oh. <laughs> a chow chow is actually like a fair, it's a medium sized dog and it looks like a bear. It's got a purple tongue. It's this purple tongue, like round faced, you know, it, it literally looks like a bear cub. And this dog, I remember one day I would chase him around with, one day I was chasing him around with like a plastic bag, you know, the noise the plastic bag makes when you mm -hmm. shake it. And he really hated it. And I backed him into a corner and this dog who was never, aggressive never you know showed his teeth never anything like that and you know when i backed him into that corner with that bag he turned on me mm -hmm. and he snapped at me and he showed me his teeth and he and he growled and barked and i guess that's the point when i'm you know i'm trying to make like you know when 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 we're faced with these stressful situations like what you're talking about with you know with your experience with this coach and with basketball in general i i, I think we undervalue the what what we're actually changing into what mm -hmm. we're transforming into and the benefit that has you know over the course of our entire lives so this is something that you know was was building up your resilience but in terms of like work ethic do you feel that with sports like did it contribute to your work ethic in a way that, that yeah absolutely i think there are things you just get like showing up on time 
Yeah. The basics, right? Yes. Effort. Those are big. Teamwork. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most, you know, (laughs) intense experiences, but also, you know, where, where real learning occurred was in college when we lost a lot. You know, I, I never was part of a program that lost and I walked into Columbia and we were terrible and we lost a lot. And I think like life, when, when things aren't going your way, when you're losing, it's very easy to point fingers, very easy to give up, but to stick together as a unit and fight through over the course of a couple of years. So like we were terrible for my first three years and my senior year, we actually started to win Mm -hmm. and it felt amazing as a unit, I think through that experience, they deal, dealing with learning how to lose, not, not, not learning to be okay with it. Sure. Uh, but learning how to come back from it, you know, dealing with adversity, dealing with uncertainty. And I think, you know, I think that that was of all the, the basketball experiences, one of the most, uh, powerful ones for me. You kind of skipped over from, you know, high school to, you know, to college basketball, sure. but I have a question. I'm not very familiar as, you know, somebody who's new to the country. I'm not very familiar with this whole Ivy League kind of yes. scenario and, and what happens. But what I can, what I do know is that, like, I've got a good friend of mine whose son goes to Columbia. Mm-hmm. And he's over the moon. Like, he's so Kobe proud. Kobe Carp? No, it's not Kobe. You know what? His son does go to Columbia. and what's listened it? to your show. And that's right. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You're the one. That's, it's you. You're that one person. No, but it, no, it's actually the gentleman that I'm referring to his son said to me, I was having lunch with him and it, like with the two of them, with uh, my, my friend and his son. And he said, oh, you know, Kobe's son also goes to Columbia and I know him in Columbia. So they actually know each other, my friend's son and Kobe's son. They actually know each other. And I guess what I'm getting at is that my friend, you know, when he talks about Columbia, like he has a light in his eyes. Like he's so proud that his son is in Columbia. Like it's a, my understanding is it's a, it's a very prestigious school. Yes. So I guess my, I, not I guess, but like my question is like, you know, you, you you said you didn't grow up with uh, excessive means. How did you get into Columbia? Is it basketball? Is it- yes. So, so is that uh, an out for a lot of people? Like for well, a lot of guys. That- so I, I was, I was smart, but I lost interest in school, and so so much so my senior year I <laughs> failed physics and a number of other things yeah. went wrong, and I was heavily recruited in the Ivy League. Mm-hmm. And for an Ivy League athlete, essentially there's a number you have to meet. And I think it's like your class rank and SAT and a couple tests. And I was below the number. And, but I was really dead set on going, playing in the Ivy League. I didn't want to go to another school. I just, right. I, I think through that injury, it was clear to me, I'm not immortal. And mm. I also learned by playing against some of the best players in the country. You know, I'm never probably, I'm never going to play pro. Like maybe overseas at best. But like, I just started to, realize you know what i can get to an ivy league school i think this is a better path and so i ended up doing what they call a pg year and i went to the school northfield mount herman in massachusetts Mm -hmm. my friends were going off to college i was doing an extra year okay um it was it was something i wasn't looking forward to but was the most fun i ever had playing basketball my it kind of brought the joy back after having a terrible experience Essentially, it was five Division One players in a team. The coach was was just Bill Batty is his name. He's like a legend there. Just mm-hmm. let us play, and we would just run and jump and dunk and score a hundred points, and it was just amazing and kind of brought the joy back. And then at Northfield, I then I was able to 
officially get into Columbia. And also what happened that year, that was probably the year I was closest to my father. He came to a lot of the basketball games. And that was also, he suddenly passed away of a heart attack. When you were 19? When I was 19, yeah. After the season, like a week after the season. And so, I mean, 19, you're still not, you're not independent yet. You may be, I mean, to a certain degree, but you're not truly independent. How was that, like, I don't know, to me, I can't even imagine. My father passed away five years ago, but I'm, you know, I was 45 years old. How does that affect, like, how did that affect you and how did that affect your trajectory? Sure. Because again, like, at the end of all of this, really, you know, you came out in a great place, like, and you're in a great place and you've accomplished great things. So... What what happened? Like, how did you cope with that, and then be able to come out of it? So, you know, it was it was a shock. I was you know devastated for I think like one or two days. Yeah. I just was crying, and then I remember being at the funeral, and almost had this overwhelming sense of uh, like some spiritual connection where everything was going to be okay, and then mm-hmm. felt lighter. And um, it, it was it's hard to describe. To this day, yeah, I've been to other. I've had other, I've lost other people in my life. I lost my best friend to uh, to drugs. I lost oh, my wow. grandmother. Like other fu- where I was other funerals where I was a complete mess. But this one, I just had this overall sense of almost joy to some degree, and it was really? it was so odd. I, yeah, is it because you weren't you know you mentioned before that you weren't super close with them because of the divorce? When like you it was still, I still love my dad, and I, I think I was it was a couple of things. One that year was probably the best year of our relationship, which for a relationship that was shaky, saw him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember he was upset at me two weeks before because I was supposed to go see him play paddle tennis. He was a big paddle tennis player. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a friend over and we went out and drank too much and slept in and he was like really pissed. And I think it was like two or three days before he passed, we kind of made amends over the phone. And that was something like I would have felt to this day, like felt terrible if yeah. I hadn't done that. And I never leave any conversation with a loved one with other than I love you. So that had yeah. like a profound impact. But I, I think, you know, I, I grew up Christian mm-hmm. in a spiritual household. So I just think like I, I went from this, you know, th- there are the multiple stages of, of grief. And yeah. I, I kind of, even though in that, in that moment it felt, like everything was going to be okay. Even though I think in retrospect, I think I lost my joy playing basketball to some degree after he passed away. I think that was part of our connection. I also probably drank way too much. I know I drank way too much after he passed. I think I started drink. I think where I grew up, alcohol was just so rampant and mm-hmm. socially acceptable. I think that just continued and probably went too far. Which is, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because now you're very, I mean, considering, we're, and we're going to get into, you know, what you're up to today in terms of your business and, and your publication. It's just that unhealthy lifestyle is very different than kind of what where you find yourself today. Yeah, and, I, and look, that was just part of growing up, the way I, you know, my, my crowd in high school and college, and we were all athletes. Sure. We all went out and drank quite a bit that's what athletes <laughs> that's, that's what that, we all did that what athletes do yeah. and and part of it i think was out of boredom part of it was just because it was socially acceptable yeah and, and i i didn't really think that much about it 
at the time. And I think when you're also that young, you kind of think you're invincible. Yeah. You think you'll live forever. Yeah. yeah. And you could go out, I'd go out till four in the morning and wake up at seven and go to practice. Okay. Barely, but it would happen. So you finished, so you finished Columbia. So how, barely, how, yes. barely <laughs> academically you mean? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what I'd like to understand, and I think what the listeners would like to understand, especially like the young people who are trying to figure out what their career is after college. Again, my understanding is your degree is in history. Yes. Okay. So you went from history to making hundreds of thousand dollars on Wall Street within a relatively short amount of time. So you graduated, you graduated Columbia with this degree. How did you, what were the circumstances under which you found yourself making the kind of money you were making on Wall Street? So... I think with with regards to the degree, Columbia's liberal arts school, the closest thing to business was economics. Yeah. And I think what made me a good trader was that I was competitive, I had a work ethic, I had I think intuition plays a role in trading and it's and I'm very comfortable with uncertainty. And I think part of that is a result of losing my father. One, there right. are a couple of things that came from that. One, you know, I believe life is precious. We're all get hit, hit by a truck tomorrow. Absolutely. So life is precious. Yeah. And when something like that happens to you, I think some people, it can make you or break you. For me, I think in many regards, it made me. Yeah. And so I'm comfortable with a lot of uncertainty or ambiguity, more so than most people. I think that's one of the qualities that makes for a successful entrepreneur. Right. No, I understand. What, and, I, and a I understand. Trader. I understand the qualities that made you good at it. Yes. But a lot of people, I think, not a lot, but a certain amount of people would be good at it. But how did you make? How did you bridge that gap? How did you make the connections? Because I'm sure that there's a lineup a mile long of people who who who, who can who who, who would want to work on Wall Street in a, in a in the firm well, that you were at. Well, so. Again, equities trading is very much a, a meritocracy. It's you and your P and L, and so. You either you know, made money or, or you didn't. But how'd you get the shot? I was an Ivy League athlete. The firm, oh, that's the firm, right. That's right. The firm had I, a man, essentially their mandate. Let's let's hire all these I Ivy apologize. League athletes. I didn't make because you had mentioned that before. Yeah. And so that was literally it. So I mean, it's interest. It's you know, it's interesting. And if you and it made sense because if look, if you weren't good, no big deal. You don't get paid any money. Right. You're probably going to quit. But it's it's amazing <laughs> that they had this the strategy as you, as you mentioned before that being an you know being a, an athlete, being a, a graduate and an athlete simultaneously. It's it's and they that was kind of their hiring mandate. Um, so it's interesting how sports kind of indirectly, how basketball indirectly got your foot in the door. Um, yeah, this, and I couldn't get firm. hired anywhere. I wanted it was like the last place I wanted to work. I interviewed like at every major firm, but I didn't have grades, and that ended up coming to to bite me. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, I was like, I just need a job. This was just taking forever. And I had a couple of friends there, and they were doing well, so, and they offered me a job. I'm like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's go. You know, you're an entrepreneur now. You have a successful company. You didn't do well in school. I mean, I and I'm and I'm the same way. So, I I did terribly but, in school. So, so for me, it's hard for me to feign interest. Yeah. And so, in retrospect, I probably picked the wrong school. I picked a hardcore liberal arts school with their famous for their core curriculum. We were reading all these ancient texts, and subjects were of no interest. Yeah. You know, there was there were certain classes that I was very, so. For instance, there was a film class. It was like a. American cinema history from like the 60s to 90s and mm-hmm. there's this guy Andrew Saris who's like a legend he passed away recently like yeah. a legend in, yeah. in film 
So I got his, I took his class and when he was there, I showed up like learning about psycho and all the, you know, Hitchcock and, and then he would leave and the TA would leave and I would leave too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that was my, I just wasn't interested and I couldn't feign interest. And I also think losing my father, I was like, you know what? I'm going to have fun. I'm here. I overachieved. I'm in Ivy league school. I'm going to play basketball and I'm going to have a fucking great time. Yeah. And as long as I graduate, so I barely graduated. That's all I really care about. Okay. How did you make the, uh, you know, we were, we were talking at, at the beginning of, um, you know, of our talk, you know, we talked about your transition from, uh, from, from wall street and, and you, and you had left because you said you were unfulfilled. You were unfulfilled. But there was more. I also knew, you know, going back to that moment, I had made that money, but I would have traded it for this relationship to be repaired. I think it was an eye opening experience for me. Yeah. Got the money. can, you know, buy the things, pay off the debt, that's great. But I'm really unhappy because this relationship at the time was completely mm -hmm. shattered and it didn't mean anything. Okay. So I was like, you know, what else? There's got to be more Do you think you put, here. you put, you're talking about the relationship with the girlfriend? Yes. But do you think that maybe, I mean, you were a young man, you were in your 20s. Yes. And at the, I know that at the time, these relations, like when, when we're young, the relationships feel like they're everything. But sure. do, do you feel that maybe now, you know, when you're, when you're now in your forties, do you feel like looking back, like maybe you put too much weight on that relationship and you, sure, you maybe I, you attach I, too I, much I, of your happiness to I, it? Of course. And, and also totally the wrong relationship, but I think you make those types of mistakes and it's part you of you learning it and growing. But I, but I was miserable. And, and I think again, you can only connect the dots looking backwards, not forward. The, the famous Steve jobs. Yeah. And so at the time it was the worst thing ever, yeah. but it was a profound moment. Cause I think I started to think outside of, Hey, there, there's got to be a world outside of, of trading equities. I'm, I'm feeling empty. There's got to be something else. And that's so, when things kind of started for me. Right. It was so, a 10 year process. What was a 10 year process from when you, I think I started to have one foot out the door in Oh one. Sorry. How long were you working as a trader? So I was like, quote unquote, all in for three years, but okay. in reality I traded for five years. I started to slowly okay. kind of wind it down because I would say the, the golden handcuffs are real. Right. So it was something I could continue to trade and put little effort in and make six figures. Yeah. But when I started to dip my toe into entrepreneurship, I consciously made the decision I need to stop. Okay. So talk to me about that. Well, how did you, how do you transition? Cause it's funny, you know, I know I have a very good friend of mine here who was very welcoming when we first moved to Miami and he's a derivatives trader. Okay. So I think it's kind of, uh, I mean, way smarter than me well I don't know about that I'm just I'm, <laughs> use, I'm using fancy words I still I don't understand a thing about day trading or derivatives trading I, I, he, he explained to me what derivatives are but you know when I talk to him about what I do and kind of you know when it comes to like anything like entrepreneurial he's just like wow that's just so far from my world yep. so I guess for me I'm trying to understand how you went from what I perceive to be kind of the polar opposite of entrepreneurialism right where it's very methodical, systematic, you know, data-driven analysis that you're doing as a trader to, you know, being an, entre an entrepreneur, especially like you, you, be you created a line of low-carb cheesecakes, yeah. if I understand correctly. Yeah. And to go from that one extreme side of the spectrum in terms of, you know, your kind of what, you, what you're doing professionally to not only being an entrepreneur, but like you're being an entrepreneur in a pro like in a product line, in a food product line that is so requires such like qualitative understanding and more gut feeling. How did you? First of all, I guess how and why did you make that transition? 
so it, it was definitely a journey and the first step out was investing and being part of the team of that healthcare company where right. I moved to Washington DC. And the way I kind of view the process, if you will, is sometimes you just have to take the first step. You don't necessarily have to know what the end game is. You Why know, did you, you want to? I wanted to eventually get out of trading. Getting out of trading is one thing, but becoming an entrepreneur is another. You could have gotten out of trading yes. and continued being an employee. I, Somewhere else. I thought about that. Yeah. I interviewed for jobs and like I would just interview for rent. Like I was kind of searching. It's like sure. I, I want to do something. And my view was I just need to, you just you just you need to be in motion. Right. You need to try. You need to put one foot in the other. See what sticks. See where mm -hmm. there's an opportunity. If the door opens, step through it. it. Doesn't work. Okay, take a step back. Right. Like I wanted to be in motion. And so, through the healthcare company, you know, I thought about staying in DC, I wanted to, I thought about Paul, I thought about a number of things, but like that segue to, I was a low carb devotee and thought there was an opportunity to create a low carb cheesecake. So I actually did that and had a company where we were shipping. It was, it was frozen and we had distribution in like 40 or 50 stores okay. and all in New York. This is when, so at the time, no, sorry, Washington. Yeah. So it started in DC and then I made the decision I said, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to put everything in storage and I'm going to move home with, wow. a, with my old, mother. How old? I was you? like 30 years old. And wow. financially, I didn't have to, but I did it. Why? Discipline. It's like I'm also running a business. Hey, there, there's more going out the door than what's coming in. And so the responsible thing is. So you were burning capital. Yeah. 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 Not a lot, but like enough where like, sure. okay, I can't do this forever and I want to be able to go all in if I need to. And so swallowed my pride and did it because it was the right thing to do. Good for you. The business, I could never get it to scale. It was too early. Like the wrong, you know, shipping frozen. This is like a long time ago. Like this yeah. wasn't a thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, we did like $40,000 and the margins were good, but I could just- In the story, in what period of time? In a year. In a year. Like that, that was, was the best year. year. And we had a shot at QVC and it didn't work out. That would have been the event where if we got that, okay, we had something. And it was just like, you know, up close, but it's the wrong product, the wrong time. And that segued to, I had met someone during that process who was starting an organic chocolate chip cookie company called Crummy Brothers. And it was like the right product at the right time. And so they had me come on as a co-founder and CEO. And that business was in every Whole Foods in the country. And that was that sort of got me closer to to health and wellness and in that process we faced the recession yeah and it was brutal cost of goods went through the roof margins we just so had, what had happened to the cheesecake business when you i sunsetted it i was like you know what i'm not, like this is a better opportunity better right. product i'm going to be part of this and it was a better product and a bigger market what ended up happening there was the recession and our cost of goods went through the roof. We, 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 I learned how scaling at the too early can be problematic. Yeah. We went from baking out of a kitchen, sh shipping mail order to being in every Whole Foods in the country and we couldn't handle wow. it. We expanded too quickly. And in that process, we were trying to raise capital to like keep, it was, it was just nonstop and flew over hundred thousand miles domestic. As you mentioned, I'm six, seven, me and a coach seat. No good. Yeah. The, the combination of the flying, the stress, old basketball injury yeah. affected my lower back. I had two extruded discs 
pressing on my sciatic nerve, L4, L5, S1. Couldn't walk. It was terrible. Went to a doctor. He said, you need back surgery. Oh, wow. Nothing against surgery. Seated as a last resort. Right. Sought a second opinion. He said the same thing. And the doctor almost has an afterthought. Said, you know, maybe some yoga or therapy could help. So I was like, all right, I'll... Colleen and I started the date at the time, my, my now wife. And this was in, this is like in 08 and 09. Okay. And then little light yoga, five to 10 minutes, morning and evening, I started to feel better. I went from yeah. couldn't walking to completely healed in six months. And it was through that experience where I was like, you know what? Everyone's got, got wellness wrong. It's, it's not about vanity or weight loss. It's about this blend of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being. I agree. One word, mind, body, green. Mind, but okay, the, and hence the genesis. Okay, I get it. Yeah. You know, I so wholeheartedly agree with you because I started getting a lot more serious about my fitness in the last three years, and I've injured myself now a couple of times, and I had uh, herniated discs, L3, Oof. L4, L5, I believe. Yeah, that's brutal. Something like that. And it hurts so much, and me being, as I mentioned before, I'm not a sports guy. I never played sports in, at all when I was a kid or an adult. But now I'm in the gym, I'm lifting heavy weights. And the thing is, is that never having experienced a sports injury, I thought when I hurt my back and I had that MRI done here and I got the results and the doctor told me like, this is what's going on. I thought this was going to last forever. I thought I'm never going to be okay. And it's interesting because it was almost like this serendipitous thing. It was like fate where we had then gone... Right after that, we went on a trip to Canada. So we had gone back for the summer, like after we had moved here, and we got a cottage in like uh, it's, a, it's called Prince Edward County. It's mm-hmm. you know in in uh, in Ontario, and you know we're there. And I, I reached out to the host of the Airbnb, and I said, "Listen, is there like a yoga studio anywhere?" Because I figured, you know, to your point, like maybe I'll try yoga, and that'll help me out. And I I ended up going to a place where they had these machines that looked like reformers. Like uh, Pilates reformers. Yeah. Sorry, I had asked for Pilates, not yoga, and and the there was this this exercise called gyrotonics or oh gyrotonics gyrotonics. I've tried that. It was called gyrotonics, yep. and I'd never heard of it before. And yep. it was this woman who was probably in her seventies who was the instructor there, and I took like one on one instruction with her. And all of her customers, like the the her her clients who were there before and who would come afterwards, were all elderly women. Mm -hmm. And then there was me. And she said to me, like I told her what my injury was, and she goes, I'll take care of you. And for 10 days straight, I did this gyrotonics thing, and it took care of me completely. Every day (laughs) after the workout, I felt a little better. And the thing is, is that the workouts never actually felt like workouts. They just felt like I was sitting there, move your arm up like this. It, It wasn't even a stretch. It was nothing. I literally felt that it was nothing. And then... I didn't feel like I worked out, and I but I left, and I'm in the car. I'm driving back to the cottage, and I'm just like, I, I feel better. The pain subsided, and then every day it would get better and better. And after the tenth day, it was just luck that I was at this cottage. After the tenth day, I was fine. That's so, awesome. so to your point, like movement, movement and exercise, and the correct kind of you know the the correct movement and exercise, that is like in your opinion does it is it like between that and let's say diet is that all we need as human beings i I want to transition now into your expertise like i I think it's mindset yeah belief system sleep yeah breathing movement nutrition 
environmental, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional environment. I, I generally think yeah. all of them, and I think for some people, one of them is off. You may have a problem. So I want to get into this, but before we do, I just want to I, I want to bridge this final kind of this final gap chronologically. So you went from the the cookie business. Yes, to my buddy Green. To my buddy. So what happened with the cookie business? So we attracted an investor who was an ex executive from Sara Lee. Oh, wow. Okay. And he wanted to come in and run the business. And it was incredible because I desperately wanted out. Okay. I was burnt. So he bought you out? He didn't buy us out, but he invested money and wanted to come in on as CEO. So we still had ownership stakes. And so he came in as CEO and eventually a year or so later, the, the business shut down. Oh, okay. But, it, but for me, it was this opportunity, you know, I was a co-founder and I was running the business. Like right. I, I, I couldn't leave. And I was really struggling with the business and, and kind of realized I didn't want to be in this business anymore, but felt trapped. So this fellow coming in and investing and want to run it gave me the perfect opportunity to step aside. And So how did Mind Body Green come? So you started telling me from this experience, yeah. you know, from your injury, at what point in your mind did it become a business? Because if... Well, maybe, there's a difference between an idea and a business, but... <laughs> well, there's a, there's a big difference between an idea and a business, right? The execution is everything. Yes. But... I guess, first of all, t tell me, I have an understanding of what your business model is, and I actually think it's quite ingenious. Let me <clears throat> let me ask you to see if I understand it correctly. So Mind Body Green is a publication, as I mentioned before, is approximately 15 million uh, monthly unique, unique visitors. I mean, that's a massive number. And it's obviously very well qualified because the people who are finding your pages or who are finding your articles, I'm guessing mostly through SEO, because it's organic traffic. You're not, you're not, it's everywhere now. It's everywhere yeah. now, right? So it's very well known, very well received. It's an authority. And I had heard of Mind Body Green before I met you. And you, you're putting out a lot of content. It's I actually just read today, this morning, it's one of your articles on the on the main page about coal plunging, because I'm, sure. I'm really into coal plunging now, which I want to ask you about afterwards. Sure. But, you know, I'm really into it. And so I read the article and it's like, like these are, I mean, it's it, look, it's a quality publication. And I believe you have around 100 people working for you right now? 60. 60. Yeah. So... I mean, these are obviously, I'm guessing some of them are administrators, some of them are writers. You probably do a lot of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably have a lot of contract writers, you know, um, who come in, contributors of, of various kinds. So look, it's a real publication, massive reach, and, you know, you, you also have a line of supplements. Mm -hmm. So, and that's my guess, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. And if it's proprietary, feel like telling me, sure. Gary, it's none of your business. And then that's your monetization, is you monetize, you monetize through your supplements, which is to me... I'm such a big fan of this business model because you're essentially creating content and it's not just creating content, you're creating true value. You're creating true value for your readers, you're improving their lives, you're enriching them, their lives and then your monetization, it's such a clean concept because you're basically saying like here, I'm, I'm, I'm prov we're providing you with this information to enrich your life. And we're providing you with these supplements that we wholeheartedly believe in that we formulated ourselves. And like your love and care went into to making on both sides into the content yes. that provides value and into the supplements that enriches their bodies. So am I, am I closest? Well, to we, we have three business lines. Okay. So advertising, which is right. the first. Yes. Been around for the longest. Uh, supplements. And then we have on, online education, which is largely driven by our health coaching. Okay, so program. on the advertising side, is it? I'm guessing it's more than just like programmatic advertising. It's mostly direct. It's mostly ninety percent is direct. That, that's yeah, we have a direct. We have a sales force. That's amazing, yes. amazing. Okay, so there's that. 
again, there's the supplements and then you health coaching, the, uh, the, the coaching. So the uh, coaching or education or is it the same? So thing? it's online education is kind of the umbrella. Yeah. And that's largely, largely driven. Our primary offering is our health coaching certification and our functional nutrition training. So your courses are more there for professional development or they're yeah, consumer. So, they're con- so they're there was actually an article in the wall street journal today about health coaching. <laughs> Particularly, this specific article was around anxiety, and a lot of people are seeking help around anxiety. Yeah. And as we all know, it's everything's connected. Sure. Mind and body are yes. one. Yes. So our program is certified by this organization, the NBHWC, which the beauty of it's sort of an accredited an organization that gives accreditation. And so if people go through our program, then they sit for a test by this organization. If they pass this test, then what is it the works is reimbursement mm-hmm. from the insurer's end. So in other words, coach goes through, their, through our program, passes the test. Then when they get clients, they work for a doctor. That client can, in the future, submit for reimbursement from their insurer. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. And at our core, we're a health forward company, so it kind of fits into so what you're, we do. you're cert- sorry. So you're certifying people for... We don't we prepare them to sit for the test. I see. Through this, we have the, you can't, not any organization, this organization, you have to pass the requirements. Your, your offering has to meet the requirements of this organization. So the students can take, take our course and then sit for their test. Not everyone can just say, I want to sit for the test. There's only a certain number of organizations who meet the requirements. We're one of them. You're one of them. I see. I see. Was it difficult getting that credit? Yeah, it was a beast. It was like a, a year and a McKinsey consultant and oh, another wow. team. It, it was it was a beast. So there's a lot of complexity to your business. Yes. Wow. It, to some degree, yeah. Every and business is, is your. If and now I'll kind of maybe geek out on the business side, but y- your courses they're not they're not in person. I'm, so I'm assuming they're they're all digital. Yes. They're all digital by live people, or they're kind of pre-recorded. So for the material. health coaching offering, that is synchronous. So people will there are certain classes you have to show up for yeah and attend virtually yes yes and then within that offering there are certain classes you can do whenever mm-hmm. but for the health coaching specifically as more more of it you actually have to it's like showing up to school you gotta show up okay and how did this start i mean how did you go and how, sorry how long how, how long has it been with health mind coaching body green? is fairly new it's no no how long old. has mind body green been in existence so and here's the thing between like an idea and a dot com and a business. So Mind Buddy Green launched in in September of '09. Okay. And so back then it was myself, my co-founders. I was the only person. Was Colleen one of your co-founders? Co- co- Colleen, yes. And then and then my other two co-founders, and I was the only one who went all in in '09. Everyone kept their day jobs except me. Right. And I remember saying to Colleen. We'll figure this out in six months. We'll monetize it. Yeah. That did not happen. It took until 2012 to really monetize the business. It was mm-hmm. definitely a strain in our marriage. It was really tough. I was all in till, on this. Until how long? 2012. So it Three took years. us, yeah, it took us, didn't get to 100,000 uniques in a month till I want to say 2011. And that's when things started to heat up in 2012. I remember January 2012, we got to 500, 500,000. And then in 13, I think 2 million, and then eventually to 15 million, and then back and forth with all the You're talking about monthly? Yes. And, you know, I'm. I'm, In 12, we started to make money. 
that's when it started. You started to make money. Started started the business. What was the initial revenue model? The ads? advertising, and I tried everything. I tried doing flash sales. Sure, via, sure. You know, when Groupon and Guild Group craziness. I tried everything. I, I actually, I actually had a daily deal site that competed with Groupon that I had an exit from. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> what was the name of it? It was called Deal Find. It was in Canada. Okay. Yeah. But I, I tried tried everything. Advertising was what eventually stuck. And then the yeah. end of 2012 raised a little bit of capital, $600,000. Yeah. And then in 13, other co-founders and Colleen came on full time and we could actually like support it. Amazing. No, that's it was a, look, a journey. That's an incredible story. I mean, look, I, I know and I feel like when you tell me this, uh, there's, I, I don't I wouldn't say I'm one of few people because I don't know how many people have the kind of the type of experience that I have in terms of online media, but I very much feel you because I've had so many different media companies. I'll tell you a funny, just really quickly, I had a, a publication that had 200 million sessions a month. I believe it. Yeah. Was this in the Facebook heyday? This was in the Facebook heyday. This was in 2013, maybe 13 to 16, Same 12. Way. It was called Provider, and okay. what it was is we, I had 30 writers working for me, and we created 30 articles a day. Each writer was responsible for creating one article a day, and it was almost like a BuzzFeed style where sure. it, was, it was everything. So we didn't have a focus like you guys have. We created everything, and then we had a login for – we had gotten to the point where we had a 1,000 different Facebook pages – that wow. were our partners. And they were not only just like Facebook publishers with millions of followers, but a lot of them were celebrities. We actually had a, an office in Los Angeles that I would I would travel <laughs> to, and I would spend Monday to Friday in LA, and then I would come home and see Valeria on the, and the kids on the weekends. And I was recruiting celebrities, so I was meeting with like all the talent agencies, with the management of the celebrities, the celebrities themselves, which was my first exposure to the celebrity world, which actually helped me building out Valeria's company. but. But yeah, and, we, and people would log in, they'd grab their link with their UTM code, they would post it to their Facebook pages, the traffic would hit our website, we had sure. banners, we didn't have direct ads, but we had a lot of, you know, we had banners, we had fully optimized, like we had a third party optimizing our, our, our auction, our, our real-time bidding, like for the, our, our banners, for the display ads. And then we would do a revenue share with the publishers. So it was like a pretty advanced system. And then one day Zuckerberg got called to Capitol Hill in light of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And our contacts at Facebook, who we were working with to, to, you know, to do this at the Instant Articles. It used to be called Instant Articles. Yeah, I remember that. We were on that. Yeah, they called us. They, I'm sure Mind Body Green was on that, yeah. They call, every big publication was on it. Yeah. They called us up and you know, they said, come to New York, we need to talk. And then we went and they said, we have to shut it down because, you know, oh, wow. they said 20, they said 20% of Facebook is on your website. Wow. Right. I definitely remember the Facebook gold rush. I remember yeah. th that gold rush uh, drying up quickly. Yeah. And, yeah. And with Google, I think with all the, all the platforms. But how are you generating traffic? So uh, again, because this is more in my wheelhouse, I'll, I want to dig into it, but like, when you started and you're creating these articles, like you, you had created these, you know, these articles on Mind Body Green, and you're publishing them. How would you get any kind of traction at all? Like, you know, like besides SEO and, and putting the links so on Facebook. It was a couple of things from the from the qualitative aspect in terms of content. We were we were known for our expert community. Right. So, I was smart enough to know I didn't know everything, and I was on this journey. And so, I was embedded in the New York wellness scene and would meet anyone and everyone. So a lot of quote unquote influencers yeah. became my friends. 
a lot of doctors, a lot of yoga teachers, nutritionists, and so on. And a lot of them would write for us. I would do interviews, they'd write for us, we, we would lightly edit. And so we quickly amassed like 5,000 contributors oh, and wow. everyone great in functional medicine or in this space, like it's in one way or form come through Mind Body Green, whether it's been writing content on the podcast or when we did events, like they've, they've come through. We've been very, I think we've been good on trends and we've been good on spotting talent. So like two of the biggest names in health right now, Andrew Huberman and Peter Atia. Andrew Huberman was at our Revitalize event in 2017. Oh, wow. Peter Atia was in our office in like 2014. Okay. It's like 10 years, you know. Yeah. So we've always been good on like talent and trends and like having multiple points of view and hitting holistic in a way that's responsible. Because it can quickly go to conspiracy theory and, and mm -hmm. you can't eat anything, you can't do anything. And um, that's kind of the underbelly of our space. And so I think we did that. We struck that balance really well in terms of what drove. So I think from a content perspective, that's always, it's like science-based, holistic well-being, somewhat balanced, reasonable yeah. balance. What drove it in terms of the platforms in the yes. early days, it was Facebook. Sure. Very, we were strong at headlines, way too aggressive on headlines that came back to hurt us with Google. And so that fueled the 100 to 15 million. And then invested a lot in search, we're, we're strong on search. And so today, I don't know what percentage, search is, is the majority, but I think it's been a little over half of our traffic. Would you say, would you say if, it's, if you don't mind me asking, do you compete with Healthline? No. For traffic. I, I'm sure they think they, like Healthline's like the biggest health site in the world. Yeah. But we're I'm, not but, even But I mean, in terms the, of, in, in, I think well, subject matter wise, well, let, you don't, but. I don't think so. And, and to take a step back, like what we're really focused on now, and the reason I'm not as connected to those metrics is because they're less important. We're really focused on brand. Yeah. And like quality. Which you're doing a great the job. The audience. I mean, yeah. And so. We're not in the scale game. And that's why, like, I don't spend a lot of time in Google Analytics. I spend more time on Shopify and looking at our email database. Like, and yeah. those are kind of the, the other areas I focus on. So I think where we sit in media, I think scale for the sake of scale is just, it, it's a treadmill you don't want to be on. Yeah. And so for us, where we want to sit and where we think we are is, you know, having a strong brand that's credible, that, you know, helps educate people that builds a great direct relationship with them through their owned and operated mm -hmm. and ultimately a brand that they trust. They want to take action, whether that's like adding a, a new practice to their life or buying a product or offering from mm -hmm. us or clicking through to a, a cold plunge or mm -hmm. <laughs> engaging with an advertiser. And so I think where media sits today, it's very much about like quality. Like, can you be a trusted brand in a good category. What's your position on, what's your take on influencers? Because influencers, I mean. I think they're, we don't have enough time. <laughs> I don't know, I'm kind of scared. Is it bad or good? Look, I, I think, look, influencers are here to stay, but I think in the same way, there's just so much content out there. Mm -hmm. There are so many influencers. And I think the same holds true. Are you credible? Do you have a unique view or a voice? Can you stand out? Do you inspire action? Or 
or are you just like everyone else? What's and there's your, so many influencers. I've, it's all, we have this, Colleen and I have this conversation all the time. We find someone else. Oh, they've got a couple hundred. It looks a couple hundred thousand. It looks like this other person who's got a couple, like you can't differentiate. I think having, it comes out of having a strong brand. Yeah, a, a strong personal brand on the influencer side or yes. for yourself. Yeah, so I guess for, okay, as a whole, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm, clearly biased but i believe in influencers because my 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 main business which is valeria's personal valeria brand, is a strong brand valeria is a strong brand yes, yes yes and it took but valeria is a strong brand because we've taken a lot of time and effort and it's a very control like we're very careful about where valeria appears and how she appears and 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 we make sure that we you know she doesn't lose her authenticity mm-hmm. and whatnot where a lot of influencers you know they're they're fast like they they may rise very quickly but then they they kind of i think they flatten out or or, or they go into decline pretty quick too with valeria we're really building a personal brand to last i mean it's not engineered to do so it's just that's who she is right Mm -hmm. Um, but i think in your space so yeah high level i believe in influencers and i believe in 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 bridging that gap between um you know consumers and the products that are being sold to them through a human being that actually adds some kind of value, whether they're teaching people, they're teaching their audience or they're entertaining their audience. But in your field specifically, in health and wellness, it's it's very different than what Valeria does because Valeria is just Valeria. It's her personality. So people engage with her because of her personality. She's not making any kind of claims that she's an expert in anything sure. one way or another. She's a conduit. Um, she researches things. She tells people her opinions. But with what you do and with your field where I guess I'm trying to understand like kind of what your position is. Like there are, There's one guy he swears by only eating meat. He's, sure. uh, I forgot his name. What's his name? You know the guy I'm talking There's about. There's like 10 of them. Okay. But sure, I know. So something MD, Carnivore MD. Yeah, or Paul Saldino, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that school of thought. You know, you've got you've got Michaela Peterson, who's like a lion diet, and all she does sure. is eat strip loin. And then you've got vegans and vegetarians. So sure. there's so many different things. And how do you as a publication distinguish between kind of charlatanism fact fiction Uh, it's it's a good question i think over time you start to develop those muscles and instincts and into what's real and what isn't um and i encourage for people listening out there to become educated yeah you know i like to say become the the ceo of your of your own health and Mm well-being because you're mentioning all these people paul saladino Peterson and then you got vegans you know what I actually think they believe in what they're talking about I think it works for them and bioindividuality is real this is you know in the, the book that Colleen and I just wrote together the joy of well-being like our, our food chapter was essentially I, like to I missed that in your bio sorry all good there was wealth but I, I knew all there good. was a sec yeah okay. all good essentially it's about eating real food avoiding yeah. highly processed food but really dialing into what works for your body and and you know I'll use an example one of our good friends is Mark Sisson, who lives in Miami. He's the founder of Primal Kitchen. He, he mm-hmm. just turned 70. The guy looks amazing. He's ripped. He's jacked. But beyond that, beyond the aesthetics, he's, he feels great. Yeah. He says he feel, feels fantastic. He eats close to carnivore. On the other hand, our other friend, Rich Roll, I think is like 57. He lives in Malibu. He looks amazing. He's you know constantly working out. He's 100% plant-based. Wow. And so who's to say what works for either of these guys is wrong. And I think that's where 
bioindividuality comes in. I encourage people like do some, you know, understand your genetics, do some like basic blood work testing, understand your risks, and then see what feels good. But I think this idea of, you know, I think you got to figure out what's worked for you. And I also think, you know, being careful who you follow online. Uh, Unfortunately, we live in a world where hyperbole (laughs) moves the needle on algorithms, speaking in extremes, having a very strong point of view and never backing away from it is unfortunately the way to build a personal brand and health and wellness. Mm -hmm. But Mind Body Green is different. Mind Body Green is different in the sense that you've built it took a, it, it, it's a very it like counterintuitive time. point of view. We also believe in having multiple points of view, which right. in media, in our world, most media organizations are not successful who do that. If we think about broadcast television, you, you segue into politics, you know, Fox and, and CNN couldn't be more opposite from the political spectrum. Right. Within health and wellness, those, those, those camps are also true. And I think there are very few media brands that show multiple points of view but do so in a way that's responsible and also you know injects brand brand view in there i think it's it's a lot more difficult it'd be a lot easier for mind body green or any individual tomorrow just say we're 100 percent carnivore or we're 100 percent vegan yeah much easier to do no look nuance is difficult you know one of the things that you know in the in the content that i've consumed from Mind Body Green, including today's cold plunge, one of the things that I noticed is that, you know, when you, when content is created, especially in the written word, where there's headlines involved, where you're you're creating a headline in order to create interest uh, for people to go in and consume your content and spend as much time on your website as possible, um, there's definitely ways to manipulate that. And sure. I think I, it's a well-known fact: media does it, mainstream media does it all the time, um, and non-mainstream media does it, but I feel that when I, and this is a compliment to you, and, and, and to Mind Body Green, is that when I consume your content, I really feel that there's not this engineering taking place in order to grab attention, but you're playing the long game in terms of creating true value that people will want to keep coming back versus just attention at all cost kind of thing. Yes, thank you. We so, try. Yeah, and, and I really feel that you know in the in the content that, that you're creating. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. So what's next for mind body green where are you where are you steering the ship so still very much focused on the day-to-day and execution so that involves putting out you know great quality content on all of our platforms whether it's our .com you know getting our youtube up to speed inspired by you <laughs> the podcast which i host and then you know focusing on our products you know can we still create best in class products yeah. there's a couple coming down the pipeline and then getting more people and in, involved in health coaching you know I think we're in a point with society with a lot of what we're doing with health isn't working. And I believe that many great movements come from the ground up, not mm-hmm. from the top down. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting to us about health coaching is you're kind of empowering people on the ground level to like take control of their health and their families and communities. I think that's how like real change happens. And so we're, we're excited that, you know, I think we're at this inflection point coming out of COVID where we have a problem. And I think many more people are deciding to not wait for the government or institutions to help them out. And they're taking it into their own hands. Well, I think because they kind of failed, right? Yes, they did. So now people, I think, to your point, people understand they have to educate themselves. Yeah, you got to take care of your own health. You got to yeah. take care of your families, your communities. And no, no one, I think, no one's got your back. It's sad. 
I think it's quite the opposite of nobody has your back. I think actually, and maybe no institutions or government. I think if you're relying on institutions or government to turn your health around or rely on health recommendations in general, I think probably not going to happen. So you don't, you don't, you don't, I guess, put a lot of uh, stock in like the who, the World Health Organization. I, I, I don't put a lot of stock in any large health organization i think yeah. look i think in retrospect it's easy to hindsight covid but i think the hindsighting is not positive for the way we handled that i think it was one thing you know when we dealing with covid in 2020 when there was a lot we didn't know yeah and then 21 we knew more and then 22 and so on but I, and, I, and i think you know i want to get your opinion on something else sure you know for myself I've been on this health journey and I, you know, I look and feel a complete 180 degrees. If I showed you pictures of me five years ago, you wouldn't even recognize me. And I'm still not where I want to be. I still have a lot of body fat percentage and, and I'm still working on it. But I feel better. I, my mind works better. I'm more positive in my life and I'm happy in general. And one of the things that I'm learning when it comes to like the food industry, and this is where I really want to get your take on it, is that it's mostly complete shit in food. Like, it not only is it shit, but it's like poison. Like, the amount of sugar that is being pumped into us on a daily basis, it's like, it's like, you know, the, the, the these companies are trying to put sugar into us at all costs, I feel. Like, everywhere you go, and if they can't get it to you directly, when you know about it, they sneak it into like a sauce, or, and everyone's trying to put sugar, like, and when it comes to the kids, it's like on every street corner, like, you know, probably be illegal to stand out outside and sell cocaine, but it's completely fine if you want to sell sugar, which is right. arguably just as harmful over the long run. So what's your take on, like, let's say, like, you know, sugar, for example, specifically and the way it's marketed to kids? And, I, and we may be going a little sure. off topic, but I want to take advantage so of, I, I, of having I, you here. I, I think, you know, as we talk about the tribalism in diet nutrition amongst influencers and there is tribalism and it is a religion right i think most agree that sugar is probably not good and okay. you should try to minimize it i think with regards to big food i'm actually more optimistic there in that sort what's big what food by- so like big food the big cpg companies yeah. of the world because most of them are publicly traded companies they work for the shareholders consumers vote with their dollars if i think about 10 years ago if i wanted a healthier version of a a peanut butter cup or an oreo or a chip or a wrap no options right i think of today wow i got lots of options i've got siete i've got hue chocolate i've got you know the primal kitchen mark Mm -hmm. talking about so i could go the list goes on there are so many better for you offerings and these companies are, are being acquired by these conglomerates because consumers are voting with their dollars. So even though obesity is such a big problem, specifically childhood obesity, yeah. I think big food, if we continue to educate people and empower people, they're voting with their dollars and you'll, you'll, you'll continue to see more of these acquisitions like Mondelez bought Hue, Kraft bought Primal Kitchen, mm-hmm. Mondelez also bought, bought Perfect Bar. We've got some other like very big companies like looking General Mills bought Epic. Right. You know, we're talking about grass fed beef sticks. So do you think so like, I, is there sufficient, sorry, is there sufficient incentive for 
big food as you refer to it as i never heard I, I never heard the reference but is there an incentive for big food to make people healthy well, well no so they're for-profit companies so uh, their course. incentive is to increase shareholder value sure if more consumers demand and start continue to buy like they are better for you offerings they will continue to acquire those companies because conglomerates are traditionally very bad at innovation it's a lot easier we'll just buy this company over here and put it into our machine lower the cost make more money and so i am very optimistic there we just have to continue to educate people to make better decisions and and sometimes products actually aren't that much more expensive right and then there's the question of subsidies which is a government (laughs) it's a much bigger discussion because we subsidize corn and soy i on a on a on a final note I, I'd like to hear from you as, you know, as being an expert in your field with entrepreneurial expertise versus academic expertise, which I, I kind of, I'll go out on a limb and say I value higher because one is learning theoretically and one is actually learning through execution. On a final note, what are your top, what are your top kind of components of health that you believe strongly in that we as individuals have to really keep our eye on and try to optimize for optimal health? I think having a higher purpose, having a connection to something bigger than it's yourself. It's more spiritual, you're saying, than... than or just purpose in general. I think yeah. purpose and spirituality are often cousins. Okay. I think that's been shown in, in all the Blue Zones work that Dan Butner has done. You should have him on your show. He lives in Miami. He splits his time between Miami and Minnesota. Okay. There's lots of science there. When people lose purpose, it, it's it's game over. You know, we've all heard the story about the executive who retires and you know has the heart attack playing golf. Yeah, that's that's very real. Mm-hmm. I think purpose is big. I think you got you got to move, got to exercise. Yeah. I think walking is the most underrated longevity mm-hmm. tool. If I don't get my ten thousand steps, I'm a very grumpy dinosaur. Mm-hmm. I think you got to be strong. That's weight, you know, as you age, sarcopenia is very real. So you're talking about weight training? Yes. Yeah. So okay. like it's just to some degree, if you like getting in the gym, get in the gym, but, but do something. There's that crazy statistic we have in the book. It's one out of four people over the age of 65 fall. If you fall once, you're twice as likely to fall again. Yeah. If you fall and break your hip, there's a 30, 40, 30 to 40% chance you die within a year. Wow. You don't necessarily die from the fall. You die from the complications from surgery. Maybe it's an infection. Maybe it's you go home and you're immobile and you're depressed and then you die. And anecdotally, we've seen this with friends of ours, unfortunately. So right. like, you got to be strong. Um, you got to eat well. Find find out what works for you there. Some people maybe want more meat. Some people less meat. Try to eat real food. Avoid the processed food and sugar. Yeah. Um, the data will point to you need, being in a strong relationship is going to help you. Social connection is paramount. We see that coming out of the pandemic. One in seven men don't have a single friend. Right. One in 10 women don't have a single friend. Mm-hmm. Being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. So you think about that. Loneliness kills. So being connected to your community, being connected to friends, you don't have to have a ton of friends. You need to have a couple friends need to get out there i think those are the things you know obviously avoiding toxins if you live in an environment that is filled with toxins where you can't you know breathe the air because wildfires what have you that's a whole another set of circumstances you want to try to avoid if you can but uh, and the last thing i think you know people could focus on is breath we breathe i think 
30 to 40,000 times a day, I want to say. Most of us are doing it wrong. We're breathing through our <laughs> mouths. You should breathe through your nose. Mm-hmm. Filters out the bad stuff. It's good for your CO2 tolerance. And it helps activate your parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest system. You'd be more relaxed. You're going to be more resilient. You're going to respond to stress better. And there's just a downstream effect. And it's free. You're breathing all day long. <laughs> The biggest objection to health and wellness is I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. Start with your breath. Start with moving. Work it into your day. Figure out some sort of resistance training regimen and eat real food. Be in a great relationship. Make sure you connect with your friends. It's interesting. It's a lot simpler. The The way you describe it, it sounds a lot simpler than what we're being presented to in the media. It is. And, you know, I think there's... In the evolution we've seen at mine, but we've seen it all. I've tried it all. So much of the great longevity research points to these simple, practical practices. Breathing through your nose, making sure you're constantly moving, doing some resistance training, being in a loving relationship. If that's what you choose, that's not for everyone and being connected with friends, having real strong social connections and have, having a purpose, a belief in something bigger than oneself, whatever that looks like for you. I like, I like the idea of, you know, it's interesting because the, the, the part about purpose was the first thing you said. I think it's paramount. I, I think it's paramount. I think, you know, I interviewed this woman yesterday, Ellen Langer. She works at a Harvard. The podcast hasn't gone live yet. She's all about mind, body unity. Mm-hmm. And, her belief, which I am coming around to in my old age, is that Ouch, we are that, so that much more powerful than, <laughs> than we know our yeah. mind. And we should be open to infinite possibility. And I do agree that many illnesses can stem from mindset and also potentially be cured with mindset. I'm not saying don't have surgery or don't take medication or don't do your things, but the mind plays a significant role. And there are a lot of studies that can prove that. So I think when we are open to that possibility, I think our world can expand in ways that are quite powerful. I agree with you. Jason, thank you again for being here and uh, hopefully I'll run into you at the next event at Fayetta. Let's do it. (laughs) Thank you.